Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. For the last 2,000 years, the vast majority of Christians and, and even Jews, and if you think about Jews even before that, probably 3,000 years, believed in the straightforward reading of the pages of Scripture, such that they they believed exactly what was written in Scripture, including the Genesis creation account, that God did indeed create everything that we see around us, and he did this in six literal days. And it was only in the last 200 years ever since the Darwin proposed this theory of evolution, that kind of thinking then pilfered into the rest of the world and, and finally infiltrated even into the church. Such that many Christians too have begun to doubt whether God did indeed create all this or whether it was all just all an evolutionary process. You see, one of the things that people of the world say is, yeah, you know, no one was there at the time. So we don't really know how it all happened. And so they propose these kind of theories. But you know what? That is exactly why in Genesis 1 it says, yes, no one was there, but God was. You see, he was there in the beginning and he created all this. That's why he's revealed this to us in the pages of scripture. So that as his children, so that as believers, we would believe in his word and take it as face value rather than putting some other understanding into it and see it through some other lens. See, according to the theory of evolution, Basically, everything began with some kind of nuclear reaction, some kind of big bang. And there was a unicellular protoplasm, a unicellular organism, which somehow accidentally or by its own volition decided to divide itself. And then automatically it just grew, and then at some point it grew a tail, and then at some point it started splashing around, and at some point it, it realized it needed to see in this environment, and, and from no eyes, somehow it created this complex thing called eyes with, uh, with the central nervous system and all that, and somehow it began to see... Um, and then it thought, oh, it's, it's a good idea to get on land, and it grew legs, and then it grew wings, and so on and so forth. But when you see the pages of Scripture, even as we've been going through this creation account the last few weeks, Scripture is very clear in, in what God has done. Just by way of reminder, we saw in... In verse 1 and 2, that God first created the earth, and the earth that he created was formless and void. That's, it, it was a, some sort of matter, some sort of a sphere of water mixed with lots of raw materials that he created right at the start. A formless and void earth. And we saw that then as the days progress... What God does is he forms the earth and then fills the void, fills the emptiness. You see, the the first thing that he created was uninhabitable. And therefore, it uh, it did not have any creatures. It did not have any inhabitants. And so for the first few days, God makes the earth a habitable place. He forms the earth. And then once it's ready for life, he starts filling that void with 
life. We saw how God created the light and the darkness, how he created the day and the night, how he created the, he divided the waters and then the expanse in between. We saw how he created then the seas and the land and trees and plants. And then we also saw the last time how he created the sun, moon, and the stars. Those great lights to, that almost act as clocks so that all the living creatures can order their life according to these clocks. How they've been created in such a way, all, all of these things, so the sun, the moon, the stars, the plants, the atmosphere, the air, uh, the, the water, the land, everything is created so that it can sustain life. And now on day five, God is ready to fill that void. God is now ready to fill this earth with life. What we see in verses 20 to 23, which is day five, is God creating life. God creates the animals of the sea and the animals of the air. The significance of this life that God has created on day five is seen with the use of the word, again, create. Remember when we, uh, when we looked at Genesis 1.1, we saw this word. God created the heavens and the earth. And, but you look at days two to four, it just says God made. And now again, in day five, it says God created. And if you remember this word create, as we learned previously, it's a term that is used in the Bible that is only used of God. It is never used of man. And what the term create signifies is making something entirely new, something that has not been there before. And it's something that only God can do. So in the truest sense of the word, we should never say, oh, man created this. Because according to the Bible, only God creates things like that. And we looked at how this word create then bears deeper meaning, even when we look at other parts of scripture where uh, David himself in the Psalms says, create in me, O God, a clean heart. Because he recognizes that he needs a clean heart. He can't do it himself. Man cannot do this. God has to do this. God has to create. We saw how in the New Testament, the, the idea of believers as being new creatures in Christ, new creation. Again, this is something new that God has made. This is not something that man can do. And so on day one, God created matter, something entirely new. And then on days two to four, he made things out of that matter. Now again, in day five, God is making something entirely new. And what, what this new thing is the very creation of life. The creation of living creatures, as verse 20 and 21 says. Now this term, living creatures, it, it literally means animate life. Which, or in other words, that which embodies life. It's a generic word for a living being or a living creature. And, which is, and this kind of life is very different from plant life. Now you might say, oh, but Benoit, plants and trees, I mean, aren't they alive? And when they created uh, previously on day three, 
Yes, we know that plants and trees are living organisms, but that scientific classification for life is very different to how the Bible classifies life. Life, according to the Bible, is a life that is contained in a body, and a body that then is animated, a body that, that moves. It's, it's a life that we would call as the creaturely life. This is very different from the plant life, which is inanimate. They don't have that kind of creaturely life. And so from a biblical perspective, plants are never described as living creatures because they don't have that creaturely life. They don't move around like living creatures. And it's for the same reason too, if you look at plants, they're never referred to as dying, but they're simply referred to as withering. So day five is a new stage in creation where God creates conscious, animate life, living creatures. And the, and the first thing that he creates is creatures of the sea. And here we come to our first point, the creation of life in the sea. Look at verse 20 again. It says there, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of life, swarms of living creatures. There's a repetition of words there. Remember we said, when there's repetition, that means emphasis. Swarm with swarms. It gives the, the, the sense of abundance and, and movement. I mean, think about it. There is nothing in the sea, and all is quiet. And God says, let there be, and immediately there's an explosion of life and movement in the seas. An abundance of it, a massive swarm of sea creatures, all of a sudden as God spoke it. See, wasn't that God kind of started up the process and there was a unicellular organism and then over time somehow it acquired certain characteristics and, and then developed into something more complex and then the sea creatures came about. No, verse 20 says God spoke and if you look at verse 21, it says, and so God created. Exactly how God spoke, it came about. Right then and there, immediately, the language of what is written here couldn't be any more clearer. There are no billions of years happening here. In fact, this is what the theologians call as fiat creation, that God spoke and by the power of his word, it came to be immediately. And it wasn't just one creature or even two of each kind that were created. No, this is a multitude. There's a frenzy of life, movement and life everywhere in the seas all at the same time. From the transparent fish to the silvery fish to the multicolored fish. From the small fish like white bait to the large sharks and the tunas from fish with electricity with, to fish with snout like a saw to even flying fish, from jellyfish to giant squids and octopuses, crabs, starfish, seahorses, eels, stingrays, dolphins, and more and more and more. They all came to be in an instant when God said, let there be, let there be swarms in the seas. You know, there are roughly about 240,000 sea creatures that have been discovered so far. 240,000 sea creatures. And still every year, even more sea creatures are being discovered as scientists travel deeper and deeper into the ocean. One official 
uh, article from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration of the United States wrote that more than 80% of our ocean is unexplored. 80% of the ocean floor is unexplored. So it's really difficult to even fathom how many creatures are there in the ocean. But even with what we've discovered, I mean, it's numerous and and so many different varieties. Take, for example, the rayfish alone. Now, we've probably seen it on TV or maybe in the aquarium, uh, especially the most common type of rayfish, which is the stingray. That's just one of them in the category of rayfish, and there's estimated to be over 600 species of rayfish alone. 600 species of that kind of fish. The marine life that God made is staggering as it is beautiful and intriguing. Here's some interesting sea creatures. The octopus, it can change color. It can change shape. It can even give out a a, a black ink of sorts so that it remains unseen when there's danger. In fact, just recently, my kids and I watched uh, Finding Dory, and and the the pictures are even more vivid in my mind. And and even when this uh, octopus is caught, it can shed one of its arms and escape and then just grow that arm again sometime later. Then there's the the flamingo tongue snail. It's a colorful snail that feeds on toxic corals. While nothing happens to the snail as such as it feeds on this uh, toxic coral, the, the toxic venom that it gets becomes part of its own tissue. And guess what? Now, other creatures can't eat it now because now this this snail has become venomous. The anglerfish that's found in the deep sea, they have a large mouth and sharp teeth. They look very scary. And they also have this lure in front of them that has bacteria in it, and it kind of produces this light in the deep ocean so that prey would be attracted to it and just goes like that. Dolphins and toothed whales, they they emit ultrasound so that they can identify things uh, from a distance, whether it's food or predator or obstacles to be avoided. And and it's the same kind of thing that man has tried to replicate in submarines and even in the ultrasound machines that we use in the hospitals. The same thing that dolphins and uh, toothed whales use. Now, let me ask you something. How do these creatures have these mechanisms of either catching their prey or escaping from their predators or or using sound waves to detect what's in the ocean? How did this come about? By chance? That they somehow developed it as they went through evolution? No, the the all-powerful creator made them this way. In fact, verse 21 makes it even more specific of the kind of creatures that God made in the sea. It says, God created the great sea creatures and every living creature of the sea. The great sea creatures. Now, one of the translations uh, has it as great whales. But I don't think that's, uh, that's the only idea. Uh, because it could really mean even a large reptile. For example, in Exodus 7, 9, uh, remember when Moses confronts Pharaoh with his staff? There, the word there for serpent is the same word here that is used for the sea creature. In, Exodus 20, uh, in Ezekiel 29, 3, the same term is used to refer to some kind of sea dragon. It's the same word that's used. 
So really, in context here, it's referring to massive creatures of the sea. Some translations even have it as massive sea monsters. So it could be large sea serpents, or it could be large fish, or whales, or, and even some extent, some giant sea creatures uh, that have been extinct. Let me show you one massive sea creature that's mentioned in the Bible that's now extinct. Turn with me to Job 41, and it speaks of the Leviathan. The Leviathan, it's some kind of large, fire-breathing sea dragon or some kind of dinosaur-type reptile that lived in the sea blowing fire. Let me read some of the verses to you from Job 41. Job, Job 41, verses 1 and 2. Can you draw out a Leviathan with a fish hook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Go down to verse 14. Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields. Shut up closely as with a seal. Down again to verse 18 onwards. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him, and immovable. His heart is hard as a stone, hard as a lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail. Nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw, and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be whitehead. On earth, there is not his like a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Yeah, so some kind of gigantic creature that breathes fire, has got scales, and sheds some white scaly thing as well as it <laughs> moves along that we don't know about right now. And that everyone feared, and this is a fearless creature. So the great sea creatures that are talked about here includes all of these massive creatures of the sea. And so God created all of these gigantic, terrifying sea creatures along with other sea creatures. They're all God's magnificent creatures. Now, you know, it's a curious thought. Why does God just single out the great sea creatures. Why doesn't he just say, oh, creatures of the sea, and leave it at that? And there's a reason. Remember the context in which Moses is writing Genesis? The people of Israel, they have been delivered from Egypt, and they're about to enter the promised land. So it's in this context that Moses writes the first five books, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And so as they're waiting to enter the land, the people of Israel, remember that there's all these pagan, pagan religious religions around, both into the land that they're entering into, the surrounding nations, as well as from uh, the nation that they have departed from, Egypt itself. See, most of the false religions of the day, of the various nations around, believe that these giant sea creatures were gods themselves. 
In fact, that they were evil gods. They were more demonic and they were to be really feared. So God is saying, oh, you think these great sea creatures, they are to be, they are to be feared? They're just my creation. They're just like all the other living creatures that I've made of the sea. For me, there's no difference from the smallest creature of the sea to the largest sea monster of the sea. They're all the same. I made them all. I'm over all. I'm over them all. And they're all under my control. So God's message to his people is clear. Your God is greater and more powerful than even the most fearsome creatures because he made them all and he controls them all. So it's not this, just the sea creatures that God made on day five. He also made creatures of the air. And here we come to our second point, the creation of life in the sky. Look at the second half of verse 20. It says that God said, let the birds fly above across the expanse of the heavens. Or more literally, uh, let the birds fly above the, above the earth across the face or across the surface of the expanse of the heavens. That, that one word is missing, the face or the surface. And remember, we looked at this term expanse as well when God created the expanse a few weeks ago. It was the term rakia, remember? We saw that the, the, the lower part of it, which is only a small part of the rakia, is the first heaven or the breathable atmosphere. And the vast majority of the expanse uh, is that vast outer space, which is everything beyond the atmosphere. So when it's saying here that the birds fly across the, the, the face or the surface of the rakia or the expanse, what is it talking about? The, the lower part. That it's flying across the atmosphere. And, and another thing to note also is the, the word for bird. It's the, the term is actually not bird. It's more literally flying things. So it's not just birds, but it's all flying creatures. In fact, just turn to Leviticus 11, 13 to 19. God is talking about flying creatures and telling the Israelites what they're not supposed to eat. And he gives them a list here in verses 13 to 19. So in verse 13... That word there that's translated as birds, again, it's the same word. It's, it's actually flying things or flying creatures. And as you go down the list, what you see is you see eagles, you see vultures, you see kites, falcons, so on and so forth. You get all the way down to verse 19, and look at the last word there. What is it? A bat. Is a bat a bird? No, we, we all know a bat is not a bird. But it is a flying creature. And so God is saying in Genesis 1, let flying creatures fly across the expanse. Again, there's an emphasis on movement, like swarm the swarms as with sea creatures. Flying creatures fly. There's a repetition there. Again, the picture is of an empty and quiet uh, atmosphere. And God speaks, and in an instant, the atmosphere is filled with flying creatures of all kinds. You know, there's roughly about 10,000 species of birds. Birds of different shapes and sizes and colors, from the tiny hummingbird to the large pelicans the rainbow-colored lorikeets to the pink flamingo, the tiny-beaked finch to the large and colorfully-beaked hornbills, the web-feed pelicans to the sharp-clawed eagles, the, the, the sweet, melodious nightingale to the 
plain-sounding quacking duck. And it's not just birds, as we saw. It's even bats and even extinct flying reptiles like the pterodactyl. You know, often we, we would have at least seen it in cartoons or movies like Jurassic Park and so on, uh, movies with dinosaurs, these massive winged uh, dinosaur-looking birds, uh, these flying creatures, really, with little claws at the end, uh, you know, with a large beak like that. And they lived along with dinosaurs. So even these creatures, you know, even all the extinct uh, flying creatures as well. So you can imagine just in that instant, sounds and colors and movement in the sky, just all of a sudden full of life. God created them all in an instant on day five as well. Here's some interesting facts about birds, or certain birds. Seabirds, they have special glands so that when they drink salty water, they can filter out the salt from the water so that they don't die with all the salt that they're ingesting. The hummingbird, there's about 3,000 different species of hummingbirds. Their wings beat between 50 to 80 beats per second. They can hover, they can just hover, they can fly forwards, backwards, sideways, uh, even fly up to 90 kilometers an hour. One bird expert uh, commented, uh, quote, were we to operate at their energy level, speaking of the hummingbird, our hearts would beat at 1,260 times a minute. Our body temperature would rise to 385 degrees centigrade, and we would burst out into flames. But the hummingbirds, they don't burn out into flames. In fact, they can live up to 12 years. It feeds on nectar from flowers for their energy uh, with a specially designed needle-like beak to get the nectar from the flowers. And because of all the energy that they spend, they even sleep for 12 hours at night just to recuperate. I mean, you kind of think of this bird and you think, how marvelous God has designed birds like this. And birds in particular, they have some very special features. They have very light and hollow bones, unlike land animals. Land animals, their bones are a lot more heavier. So because birds have hollow bones, it makes it very easy for them to fly because they're light. Birds also have lungs that are like tubes. And they take in air through air sacs at one end and expel it at the other end. So it allows for the birds, you know, as they take in air, as it flows in one direction, uh, as it's flying. It's the most efficient way of absorbing the greatest amount of oxygen while flying because of the way their lungs are designed, so different from ours. Many birds also migrate long distances every year. Many of them fly at night, guess what? And they follow the stars to get to their destination. One commentator even stated that there have been studies that show that birds that are raised entirely indoors, birds that are hatched under a roof, never been outside, once you release them out and they see the stars, they can orient themselves and migrate that long journey when it's time. How do the birds know to do that? Where do these birds get these special abilities from? From billions of years of evolution and somehow they acquired it? No. These special abilities show that the flying creatures 
were especially designed by God this way so that they could function well in the realm that he, they were created to exist in. And verse 21 very specifically states that God created the sea creatures according to their kinds and the winged flying creatures according to their kind. Now we looked at this phrase as well a few weeks ago, according to their kind. We saw at the time that kind does not mean, does not equate to species. But it could perhaps refer to family, the, the same family. But fundamentally, there's no scientific term for it. Uh, but what we can say is this. It simply means that God has put a certain limit, a certain boundary to the amount of variation within a particular kind, within a particular group. So within a kind, there can be many variations. So one of the examples that we looked last time was, you can have a donkey, and you can have a horse, and you mate them together, you get a mule. Now, they might all be different species, but they all belong to the same family. A killer whale can mate with a dolphin, and you can produce what's called as a wolfin. So what we know from these creatures are that though they are different, they belong to the same kind. But there are great variations within the kind. But with that variation, God has put a limit to that variation at the very DNA level. That one kind will only produce that same kind. One kind will never, ever produce another kind. God has put those limits and said they will produce only according to their kinds. So this variation in kind is what I guess science would call as microevolution. But what we can say, according to the limitation that God has put in, within the kind, is that there is no such thing as macroevolution. So the idea that life originated from a single cell organism and then completely uh, became something else, that, that's totally ruled out. Because it's going from one kind to another kind to another kind to another kind. God set limits in the DNA of his creatures. The birds were not first of some other kind, which somehow decided they wanted to fly, and over time they grew a pair of wings and started flying. No, birds were always birds. God created them to fly from the very start. Fish were always fish. All of the creatures were specifically designed for the specific realm that they were created for, whether it's the sea or the sky. What you see right from the start is that there, there are massive sea creatures along with small, tiny ones. There are flying creatures from birds to bat to flying reptiles. There's a wide variety in the kinds that were made, but God specially designed and created all of them on day five with his word, and instantaneously all of them came to be. Now the end of verse 21 says, and God saw that it was good. God evaluated his work. He saw that it was complete. What had filled the skies and the seas were exactly what he wanted. So the implication there is when God is looking out, there are no in-between creatures that are going from one kind to another till it gets to the perfect kind and then stays that way. No, everything is exactly according to how God had planned and purposed. As God said, so it was. And so God looks at it, evaluates it, and he deems it 
as good. God not only, you know, specially creates life and living creatures of the sea and the sky, but there's also something, something else that he does very uniquely on day five. He also blesses his creatures. And here we come to our last and final point, the blessing of life in the sea and sky. Verse 22. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the sea, and let let birds multiply on the earth. See, the one true living and eternal God is the life-giving God. And he not only gives life, but he also is the life-sustaining God. God blesses his living creatures by giving them the ability to reproduce other living creatures according to their kind. I mean, think about it. I mean, if the creation of life in itself was not glorious, God now enables these living creatures to produce animate life. I mean, think about it. It's not just a clump of cells that are together and just simply gets up and moves uh, like a robot. No, these creatures, uh, with their life, there's a... There's a level of consciousness. You know, they can feel pain. There's a sense of them exercising their own will. You know, think of them, you know, think of something like a magpie. If you trouble a magpie, you can be sure that every time you pass that area, that magpie is going to come and trouble you. Is it exercising its will? Yeah. It's not just a clump of cells. So, so the very fact that God is now giving these living creatures the ability to reproduce life. It is such a glorious thing that God is doing here. So God gives his creatures this privilege and ability to produce life. You say, why? So that they can carry out God's purposes to fill the earth and enjoy all that he has made for them. And through God's blessing, these creatures, as they live according to God's purposes, there's security as well of continued existence, that they won't die out. As with many of the words that we've looked at in the previous days, even this word, blessing, it's used here for the first time in the Bible. And from here the theology of blessing slowly unfolds as we keep moving forward in the pages of Scripture. What's God's blessing in a nutshell? It's experiencing the fullness of God in God's presence and living according to his purposes. Let me repeat that again. God's blessing is experiencing the fullness of life in God's presence and living according to his ways and purposes. One commentator put it like this, blessing is the center of life. It is, it is life itself and includes all phases of life. God is fountainhead and source of all blessing. And then he goes on to, uh, speaking of blessing creation and creatures, he says, he blesses them to live the life He gave them to the fullest, but he simultaneously establishes divine definitions as to what that blessed life can look like. So God defines what the blessed life is to look like because he's the source of life, he's the source of blessing, he's the source of that fullness of life, and he determines, therefore, what that blessed life should look like. 
And that blessed life is a life that is lived to the fullest in the presence of God while living according to his ways. There's no blessed life. There's no life lived to the fullest. There's no life that can be lived by being away from this God and living not according to his purposes. Because he's the supreme one. He's the creator of everything. And there's a purpose and design for which he has made everything. And as we move in a couple of chapters in Genesis, what we'll see is that sin caused us to be alienated from the blessing of God's presence and that fullness of life. But as we keep reading, we see God is still bent on blessing his creation and especially mankind. And according to the fullness of time, therefore God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take our punishment and to die on the cross for sinful creatures like us. Why? So that our relationship with God would be restored. So that we could once again experience the blessing of God, experience the fullness of life so that we would be able to live the life in the fullest sense according to his purposes. That is what God has done for us. I wonder if there's anyone here who has not put their trust in Jesus. Someone here who's just living according to your ways, living according to the ways of the world, perhaps very religious on the outside, perhaps coming to church very regularly, maybe even saying prayers and so on and so forth. But really the life is very different. It's not very different from the world. Let me tell you by what scripture says, that kind of life is the way of ruin and curse and judgment. If you continue to live your life in this way, you will face the judgment of the perfectly righteous and living God and you will be cast away from his grace and his blessing and you will be under his eternal judgment for all of eternity in the lake of fire. But God has provided a way for you to have hope And there is good news for you to be blessed and live according to the way that you were created. And that is through Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on what he has done on the cross of Calvary. And if you believe on him, then turn away from your sin and continue to believe in him and walk according to his ways. This is the life of blessing for you. Verse 23 ends the day by saying with the usual refrain, and there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. Another 24-hour period. And the fifth day has ended. The start of the fifth day, there was no life. The seas were empty. The skies were empty. Now it's teeming with life. Colors and different shapes and sizes and sounds and movement and so on and so forth. For those of us who are believers, as we reflect on this passage, we shouldn't just see the the, the wisdom and the beauty and the power of God in creating life. While we must marvel at that, but we should also remember his care for his creatures and how he made them and how he blessed them. As we look at our lives, I mean, we can see God's blessing continuing on, can't we? He has blessed us beyond measure. And most importantly, by saving us through our Lord Jesus Christ by forgiving us of our sin and and giving us eternal life, that blessed life 
we are already experiencing, beginning to experience that life right now with all the spiritual blessings that are there in Jesus Christ. And this life we will experience in the fullest sense from a spiritual standpoint and a physical standpoint in the fullest sense when Jesus returns. And so each day that we live as believers when we get up it is a testimony of God's faithfulness and blessing to us. His blessing to provide for us every single day our daily needs as well as our spiritual needs. And so therefore, as we reflect on this text, let us in response live according to God's purposes because that's the reason why God has created everything, including you and I. And as we live according to his ways, knowing him, we can enjoy life in his presence and he will give us the ability to live according to his ways. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that you are the God of life, that you give life, that you sustain life. And yet, Father, with the entrance of sin and death, it seemed like your, uh, everything was going amok. And yet, Father, this was all in your plan because it is into this sin-cursed, death-filled world that you decided to send your son to show your love, to show your grace to pitiful creatures like us. We thank you for the privilege that it is ours, that you have blessed us and opened our eyes to yourself, that you have given us this eternal life, which we're already experiencing, that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Help us not to be, uh, that our appetite and our thinking would not be dimmed by the things of this world, but we would ever be energized by all that you have provided for us, that our eyes would be focused on you till the very end. And even as Jesus comes, we look forward to that day when we will live this life in the fullest sense, enjoying uh, your presence and living according to your ways. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that is always sufficient for us. We pray that you would dismiss us now with your blessing. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.